As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, and this is important, you need to reset for the weekend. You need to reset for the second half of 2023. And particularly if you've not participated in the seven tech stocks, Mike Wilson will brief on the caution that is out there. He is at Morgan Stanley, their U.S. equity strategist, and has been, I'm going to suggest, cautious through thick and thin of this pandemic and forward. Mike, what are you writing this weekend to recalibrate a cautious call? Yeah, good. Uh, good to see you guys. I mean, our call really hasn't changed. Uh, you know, uh, we're very disciplined on price, uh, and as you know, we we got tactically bullish last fall at thirty five hundred because that was a good price. And now we're of course back to the high end of the range, and that's not a good price. Uh, and that's at the S and P level. That's not really what's been interesting over the last six or seven months, as you know. What's been interesting is what's going on under the surface. Um, I would say in the fourth quarter. That was a very hated rally uh, because it was led by kind of the old economy, financials, industrials, energy, materials. It was all based on, you know, the China reopening story, which was legitimate. And technology stocks obviously disappointed and they did not trade well in the fourth quarter. So it was a hated rally because that's what people own. Now, of course, the S&P is trading at the same price it was in early December when we got cautious again. And tech is obviously going to the moon. And now this rally is loved because these you know, this is what people want to buy. This is what people want to own. It's a lot more interesting and, you know, kind of exciting to own AI and techno- technological revolution than it is to own some those old economy stock that's, you know, well, why do I want to own this long term? So it's just an interesting development. We would characterize this as the bear market is continuing. Okay. This is what bear markets do. They, they're designed to fool you, confuse you, make you do things you don't want to do, chase things at the wrong time, probably sell them at the wrong time. And the overriding, we think the overriding driver, okay, of this year's rally has been increased liquidity. Liquidity has improved dramatically, both on a global scale and the weaker dollar has helped. That's going the wrong way now again. And then, of course, ironically, the banking failures that happened in March led to an injection of liquidity from the FDIC and the Fed. And we think those things have really conspired to drive the market. I mean, nobody talks about the fact that crypto is up 60% this year, okay? And then the next one, of course, is the is the tech world. So this is what's going on. We think that the fundamental case does not support, you know, where stocks are trading today, whether it's at the index level 
or at the single stock level. And the second half is going to be a bit choppier and probably downward in the index. Mike, let's just talk about the index a little bit more. And great to have you with us as always, particularly going into the long weekend. Mike, you really started the debate this week on this program. And we reflected on your note from over the weekend into Monday when you said the following, that there are many technical signals that conflict with the idea that this is the beginning of a new cyclical bull market. There was a short list after that of those signals. And one was extreme narrowness, poor breadth. We presented that to Savita Subramaniam, a peer of yours over at Bank of America, and she said narrow breadth is not a precursor for doom and gloom. Mike, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to respond to that. What is it about narrow breadth that you think signals something at the index level? Well, um, I, mean, I think there's you could debate this one way or the other, meaning when you make a market low, you typically do have you know severely negative breadth. That is a good sign. However, the index is usually down with it. So... We think where we are is the index is telling you things are rosy and things are fine, and the breadth is telling you otherwise. And then when we put our fundamental overlay on top of that, which is, you know, we're way out of consensus now on the earnings front, then we can make the conclusion that the internals, right, the breadth is being one of those, but the internals and the leadership is telling you that growth is going to be a problem in the second half of this year. Whether that's an economic recession or not, doesn't we think it's going to be an earnings recession that's way worse than what people are currently modeling. And look, I wanna go back to the beginning of the year. You know, you guys are good readers of our reports. You remember in the beginning of the year, I was somewhat nervous that everyone was in the same camp at that point. We were, yeah. our view is very consensus on the fire and ice, you know, the tightening and then the slowdown. And so we were trying to figure out, well, how could how could everybody be right? That doesn't work. And, th- and so what we've done now is we've worked off that oversold condition. And more importantly, now I would say the consensus is actually optimistic on earnings again. And that's just where we completely disagree. So Mike, can we just build on the challenge to the index level retesting the lows of, of last year, given the muscle of five or so names doing just ridiculous things up 100% plus Meta, NVIDIA, et cetera. Is that a big enough challenge to the view that we can retest the lows of last year? Well, not necessarily, not at all. In fact, it kind of sets us up where it's probably inevitable now because what's happening is you're you're basically forcing people into these stocks at bad prices now. Um, I mean, you know, the valuations last fall on these stocks in particular was extremely attractive. And if you look at the performance of all of these names, with the exception perhaps of the one this week, which, you know, earnings are going up, the earnings are not driving these stocks. It was 100% multiple expansion, which goes back to our liquidity question. So look, the price is wrong in our view because the earnings are probably going to be wrong for most of these stocks, not all of them, but most of them. And so from here, we think it is still a stock picking game. And of those six, seven, eight stocks, my guess is two of them will probably be okay and the other ones will not because they are the economy, okay? They can't avoid the economic slowdown and the top line slowdown that we see in the second half of this year. Mike, maybe a bit off your remit, but I got to go here. Just percolating in the zeitgeist into June is the once again debate of active versus index usage in the equity market. Give us your update on the value of active versus the value of index investing. Really interesting confluence right now because, you know, you could argue both are working at the moment, right? I mean, you know, having the right stocks in your portfolio has been really the only way to make money this year. The problem is, is that those stocks are such a big part of the index. The passive person can say, look, my passive strategy is working as well. You know, and and so we still think active will uh, have a comeback here um, as we go through the next couple of years. It already is to some degree. But boy, it's been 
you know, it's it, the market. Once again, the market is doing a very good job of kind of fooling us into whatever we want to believe. Um, we think active will be uh, the place to be for the next two or three years. It's going to be a comeback there. Mike, uh, dovetail this with Ellen Zentner. Take the recession call of Morgan Stanley and dovetail into your caution on equities. Yeah, so Ellen and team, I mean, they're not looking for a hard landing. What they are looking for, though, is a very sluggish uh, economy. So it's sort of zero percent GDP growth. Right now, that you know, that's fine if you still got price. Our view is that zero percent GDP growth will lead to bad price, and we're already seeing that in the good sector. And then we've done some consumer work recently, which is we're starting to see signs that even the high end is starting to pull back on spending intentions on services. So you know, services is seventy percent of the economy. It's you know. Goods are 70% of the S&P 500 earnings. So in other words, the economy can stay kind of at zero, but that's not going to be a good outcome for S&P earnings in our view. Mike, do bears eat lobster? <laughs> well, we can't afford it because we're bearish. You know? I mean, <laughs> lobster's, lobster's expensive. Plus, it I'm, is. A, plus I'm, a, I'm cheap anyway, so, you know. Mike, we'll try and hook you up with one. Thanks for appearing this morning. We appreciate it. Mike Wilson there. <laughs> Of Morgan Stanley, you got to do lobster and hot dogs. Honestly, the feedback is ridiculous. Who cares about economics, finance, investment, or that? As you know, over the years, I've made clear the Bank of England simply does it better. Maybe it's because it's a surprisingly new public institution versus the Fed and all the codified history of the Fed. But what they do more than anything is they take in people with different views. I think of Adam Posen now at the Peterson Institute, excuse me, Internet, uh, IIF, I'll get it right, International Economics, uh, Peterson International Economics in Washington. I think of David Blanchflower at Dartmouth. And now they go brilliant in a number of months by bringing in somebody really original in economic analysis and policy discussion, Megan Green of the Kroll Institute and, of course, of Brown University. She uh, will join the Bank of England, and obviously with those constraints, she cannot speak about the Bank of England. She cannot speak about the United Kingdom. We checked with her entourage. She cannot speak about the future of Tottenham Spurs, and she can <laughs> definitely not speak about the politics between Cambridge and Oxford is just too deep and too dangerous to go to this morning. Megan, congratulations on this hugely important uh, appointment. I wanted to, to talk today about the American economy and the certitude we have of guessing vectors of inflation. You're expert at the history of the study of that. Can we actually game a vector of inflation? Yeah, look, in, the inflation data was always going to be bumpy coming down, um, and that's what we're seeing. But I think what we can gauge is sort of underlying trends and look for signs of persistence of inflation in the U.S. Uh, the core capital goods data that just came out surprised on the upside. Um, that's about 70 percent of fixed investment. So that suggests that demand's pretty strong in the U.K. economy. Um, and core PCE was stronger than many had hoped. So, you know, I wouldn't read too much into one data point, but it does suggest that the Fed isn't done. So even if the Fed does end up pausing, I don't think it's finished here. Um, right. We've seen that corporate earnings have been pretty strong. That means that there's a lot of labor hoarding that may well continue keeping the labor market strong. That, again, keeps demand strong, um, keeps upward pressure on inflation. So I think that the Fed's got more work ahead of it. One of the Megan Green realities is plain language. You actually speak in English. Thank you for that. will help you with the, the Bank of England. 
You speak of this as a weird time in history. Define that phrase. So it's a weird time in history, just given the success of shocks that we've had uh, on the economy between a pandemic, a war. Um, a lot of the indicators aren't really responding, particularly to tightening of monetary policy, as one might expect. And the labor market here is a great example. The labor market is holding up freakishly well, given how much aggressive tightening there's been in the U.S., and as I just said, you know, that keeps demand really strong. And so uh, the Fed's trying to sort of kill off demand to bring it back in line with supply so we can see price stability. But it's just not transmitting. Monetary policy is just not transmitting into the real economy as we expected it might. Uh, Dominic Constant was on earlier with Mizuo, uh, also out of Oxford, and he made very clear this is a partition between demand-driven inflation and supply-side inflation. Obviously, that's a pandemic inflation. Are we still living the pandemic in the wall of data scene in America this morning? Are we still living the pandemic in our funny savings ratios and what that means for income and spending? I think we are. Uh, it's a bit too early to say how long that will actually last, but we're seeing it in consumption patterns. Uh, we're seeing it in people's decisions to leave jobs, to move. We're seeing it in the real estate market. So the pandemic uh, is very much still with us. And I think uh, some things will structurally change going forward as a result of the pandemic. We're just not sure exactly what it is. If you look at the labor force participation for different demographics, overall, it's recovered in the U.S. It took a really long time. But there are differences, particularly among older workers. Um, and I think that will be with us for a while. That said, we really struggled with supply constraints, not just in the labor market, but also, of course, with global supply chains um, during the pandemic and in the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. And if you look at a bunch of gauges for uh, global supply chain tightness, it's actually eased quite a lot. So I think that piece has eased. Um, and yet inflation remains stronger than what we'd hope. Okay, inflation is stronger than we hope, but there's a belief there of getting back. Now, I, I don't want to get you in trouble with Bank of England here, but the former vice chair of the of the Fed, Richard Clarida, and others are debating a 2% idea. Would you suggest the greater theory of our macro policy forward is going to be a, a, an adjustment of any given central bank's band or target that they're getting back to? So we may we're certainly beginning a debate about that, I think, among the intelligentsia. But uh, but I don't think we've made much progress on that. Some are calling for a higher inflation target in the U.S. in particular, you know, somewhere around three um, percent. The Fed and most other major central banks have defined price stability <coughs> as a symmetric target around two percent. What the <coughs> academic literature shows is that actually until inflation gets above four percent, most people don't really notice it. Yeah. Um, so. I'm not sure. They don't notice inflation, at least, in terms of, you know, the hit to their actual standards of living. So whether it's 2% or 3%, right. um, that may be more of an academic debate. You absolutely nailed this. I got one minute left, Megan. I'm sorry. But this is research out of VCU that Olivia Blanchard is calling sentient inflation. Are we anywhere near sentient inflation where we're just comfortable with our inflation rate? So no, I don't think we are near an inflation rate that we as the public or that the Fed's willing to tolerate in the U.S. Right. I think I think it will need to come down closer to the 2% right. 
target before the <clears throat> Fed's really ready to um, hang up its boots and be done with it. So uh, as I said, we might get a pause in June, but I wouldn't take a pause to mean that the Fed right. is done. I think there's more work to be done. Uh, Megan, very quickly here, and I'm really trying to stay away from the Bank of England police here, and I think I'm safe going here as well. One of the great things about Fenway Park, Megan Green, and it's not Narragansett Lager Beer, it's the Yankee Lobster Company. Can you give us a rating on the lobster roll from the Yankee Lobster Company at Fenway Park? Uh, I can't, Tom, because why would anyone ever get anything but a Fenway Frank at Fenway Park? So I've, I've never had it. I, I stick with Fenway Franks. Bottle that, and you will see that as she enters the August doors of the Bank of England. Megan Green, congratulations from the Kroll Institute. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, Jeanette Lowe, Managing Director of Policy Research at Strategus. It is a Baird uh, company. Jeanette, what is a distinction for you? What will you listen for this weekend? So first, thanks for having me. Um, So we do have a deal coming together, which is um, good news. There are still a lot of details that need to be worked out um, as you continue to hear that they've made progress and they are limiting the number of issues that still need to be uh, taken into account and and finalized um, among the negotiators. So it does seem like we are getting closer. We're definitely going to be looking at how this deal is structured This is definitely smaller than what the Republicans initially proposed. They were looking at 10 years of discretionary spending caps. We might be more at two years. So that how that's going to be structured is going to be important, I think, for the markets, because there is this anticipation that we're going to get some austerity out of this deal. But even if we don't get austerity out of this deal, we still think there's more fiscal austerity in the, in the years ahead for the United States. This is really, really important. You went right where I wanted to go. And this is literally the history you learned at Richmond and BU. What's the difference between our austerity and what, say, the United Kingdom is living? They seem to be drowning in an austere psychology. I don't see that in the last eight or 10 years in Washington. I see, you know, if it moves, spend it, spend every dollar. What's changed? So what we've seen is that, you know, 
obviously the pandemic, you've had extraordinary fiscal stimulus come into um, and that the government provided. And then obviously we've had inflation come on top of that. What's really been the key change now, because to your point, we have been able to just spend and cut taxes quite freely for the past number of years. But now that we've had interest rates rise so much, that is now increasing the cost of the U.S. debt. And so net interest costs for the U.S. are now increasing. We have seen historically that once those rates hit 14 percent of tax revenues, financial markets begin to impose austerity on policymakers. We are currently at 12.7 percent, and we anticipate that we will get to 14 percent by the end of the year. And so that is where we're really looking. That's going to start to squeeze the federal budget. So even if this deal is not particularly austere, um, which given the current contours, it doesn't seem like it will be, we are still looking at the fact that over the next couple of years, the policymakers still have a number of other times that they're going to have to come into play to think about how do they bring the U.S. fiscal budget into a better alignment um, to kind of handle some of these costs that they're dealing with. Jeanette, can we just finish on the X date, the so-called X date? The Treasury doesn't have a precise idea of when that falls. We're all guessing here. They have some information about tax receipts. It can be very lumpy sometimes. How are you reading the tea leaves of that situation? Right. So, I mean, the, I think all the negotiators want to operate off the fact that we have June 1st as the X date. Now, there always is a little bit of uh, flexibility with that. Treasury wants to have a little bit of a buffer so that if we were to cross over the X date, you would still have maybe some cash to still continue to make payments before the Treasury Department would actually run out of cash. Maybe they might be able to make it to June 3rd, maybe not. They did put out an auction this morning um, that does make it seem like they might have a little bit more cash um, at the X date. But I think the more important thing is, is that their negotiators are focused on the X date and if we were to cross it, we do think that that would be quite a market jolt. Um, it would actually help get a deal if we still hadn't gotten one at the same time. Um, but I think that the the actual you know loss of cash is less important than that X date right now, just for policymakers to be able to control their focus. Jeanette, just to finish on that point, when they start to think about prioritizing spending, I think there can be some confusion between going through the X date and defaulting on debt obligations. There can be two different things. How do you think the Treasury will start to prioritize spending as we, if we, go through that date? Exactly. It's a great point because the big thing that we have been trying to focus on is the fact that this would actually not be a default if we crossed over the X date. Treasury, we believe, would prioritize making interest and principal payments on treasuries. This would be more about prioritizing spending and payments to bills that need to go out at some point. We still think that the Treasury would prioritize things like Social Security, Medicare, defense, but then it's about whether or not you pay some other federal contractors on time. So it seems more like a, you know, what we would see when we have a government shutdown with trying to move payments around, but it's not an actual default on, on U.S. Treasuries. Hey, Jeanette, thanks for clearing that up. Appreciate it. Fabulous. Just brilliant. Jeanette Lowe there of Strategus. This is what matters, folks, because you're living the tech dream like we are, and Mr. Ives is leading the way with optimism on their profitability, their enduring profitability. He is at Wedbush uh, Securities. In Cupertino yesterday, they saw what you saw. What does the NVIDIA 4.4 standard deviation leap mean for Alphabet, and particularly what's it mean for Apple? 
Look, I mean, this, in my opinion, it's $800 billion of incremental spend now over the next decade for big tech. And when you look specifically at the read-through for Apple, I mean, there's no better read-through what I believe, and we'll see more at the developer conference, in terms of overall demand. And this AI revolution, it's opening up a total addressable market for these big tech players that wasn't there six months ago. Is it profitable, Ed? That's at the top of the income statement. That's CapEx off cash flow. But will it be profitable? It is a gold mine in terms of profitability from a margin perspective, because that's right now Nadella and Redmond, I mean, they're popping the champagne because for every dollar that you're going to see of AI spend, that's margin incremental 15%, incremental margin. So I think what's starting to happen with these stocks is that streets starting to look through the trajectory. You're looking at higher margin business, growth that's really going to be, you could really count in two hands the amount of players that are going to benefit on the first, second derivative. And when you saw it from the video, it shows this is a gold rush that's real, not hype theme, maybe like metaverse, you know, and crypto and some of the others. So we're going into the long weekend and there's going to be a bunch of family members of people who follow this stuff, maybe even buy it, who are going to hear of this company for the first time. It's been performing really well for a long time, but for a lot of other people, they might not be familiar with this name. It's not exactly a household name outside of Wall Street. Can you run people through what they actually do sure. and what they're leveraging here? So, so when you think NVIDIA, in my opinion, I view it as the hearts and lungs, the epicenter of really, from a chip perspective, of AI and what I'll call big data technology. Nothing works without NVIDIA chips. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, it's all feeding off NVIDIA. And that's why I kind of view it as the foundation, the best derivative in terms of what you see as a forecast, what's coming down the pike three, six, nine months from now, is what you saw from Jensen with the $4 billion guidance rates. Because that now is gonna feed into Microsoft, it's gonna feed into big tech, and I think, you know, in, in my opinion, it's not just about the guidance. This is a historic day that shows the AI revolution. I believe it's probably the biggest transformational tech trend I've seen since covering tech in the late 90s. That's a lot of hyperbolic language. So let's strip some of that down and talk about valuations. When it comes to momentum in names like this, how relevant are valuation metrics, given the story that you're describing in this big future that you're expecting? I think when you f become laser focused on valuation over the next year, you would have missed basically every transformational tech stock the last 15 years. So in my opinion, to look at that, it's looking at the leaves instead of forest through the trees. I, but I look at it like you could look at an incremental five, ten dollars per share of earnings power when you start to trajectory it out. Uh, you know, right. as, as Tom and I have talked, you know, on Apple. I mean, I view Apple right now in some of the parts. I could argue that AI adds another thirty to forty dollars per share to the Apple story. What's Apple at, doing with AI? What's that about? Well, I think we're going to see the developer conference because ultimately they're going to really right now the billions they've been spending on AI. It's going to be another use case that you're going to be able to deploy within their install base, within those two billion iPhones. But what and, are we talking about? Siri on steroids? What are you describing here? So, so from an AI perspective, they're really going to be, from a user perspective, be giving users the ability to, on the services side, from cloud, from music, from TV, to more and more of the devices, cross-pollinating between different devices that you're going to be able to get different information within the actual Apple user. And I think what Cook's going to talk about is AI could be 
really mm-hmm. another foundation, another right. monetization of the Cupertino growth story. You're the Uber bull. You got a lot of people taking shots at you. And any research report halfway through, there's three paragraphs on total risks. What's the lead total risk paragraph to AI? Biggest risk is basically what I view as the U.S.-China decoupling, because you could argue that that's a risk from an AI perspective. And two, is that, Taiwan a risk because this stuff is actually made off TSMC? I mean, look, I was just in Taiwan a week and a half ago. I think right now it's bark, worse, and bite, in my opinion, in terms of a, as an overall risk. Biggest risk is just companies don't spend. They had to hype <clears throat> the economy ultimately. Right. They're gonna, but as of right now, what we're seeing is, you know, I, I, I think this is right now a green light to own tech, um, you know, in terms of what we view. And I think this is just... I think the start okay. of I think tech being up another 10, 15% last year. Apple EBITDA margin, 32 cents on the dollar. What does AI do to that out five years? That basically increased by about 500 bips. So what is it? Some of the parts, did you say up $20? Some of the, some of the part, you can say Apple, it could add 30 to $40 per share as it all gets monetized into the base. It's amazing, isn't it? It's easy, I've never easy, heard this. easy I, to sit I, here never. and just be smug. You know, I reflected on this <clears throat> a couple of times in the last few years and once more recently. There's this great exchange, Dan, and I'm sure you've seen it, between an analyst on Wall Street, bullish on the internet, and a journalist from 60 Minutes. And the journalist from 60 Minutes is sitting with this analyst on Wall Street and saying, Amazon's worth more than Sears? Does that make sense? And, you know, and he's, so, yep. he's so convinced he's right about Amazon just being this bubble and Sears <clears throat> being you know, what Sears was. And I'm just trying as hard as I can to be open-minded about this moment at the moment, Dan, any reflections on this period and and that one? I, I mean, this period reminds me of what I viewed coming out of the the Apple launch with Jobs in 07. Right. and it reminds me of my visits with e-commerce companies in the late nineties. In in terms mm-hmm. of, so I would say there's only two other times that I would compare to this, and I believe right. that's why Nadella, that's why Cook. That's why Jensen are going after AI. Your buy recommendations built half the houses in the Hamptons. I mean, anything over 5,000 square feet, they got a breast plaque on it. Thank you, Dan, as well. Would you like to weigh in on the lobster roll debate in the Hamptons here? I mean, you've got a little bit of experience at that. I, I do. I'm look, <clears throat> super bullish on the lobster roll in Ham, Hamptons, but I continue to believe the best lobster rolls are a 617 area code. So up in Boston, you like it with the hot butter or the cold? I thing? do. Look, and even though I'm a Long Island guy, I'm more of a 617 <laughs> when it comes to lobster rolls. John has no idea what we're talking I mean, You I mean you don't have to go to Maine to get I've the had, proper I've New England roll? I've had lobster in Boston. I'm very well traveled. <clears throat> Thank you. But Could I will say t- Pharaoh at Durgan Parks years ago. Could you imagine what the waitress would do to John Farrow? Your accent, who are you? <laughs> but but the, guy's, the guy's a legend. It doesn't matter where, where the last Thank you, Dan. You tell him. You clear that up. I just got this message from Art Vandelay on, on Twitter, and thank you for writing in, because a lot of you have given us recommendations. Oh, are we getting recommendations? Lobster, lobster landing in Clinton, Connecticut. Oh, yes. Lobster landing. Yes. Looks like this little right. shack by the water. It looks fantastic. Jonathan emails in Surf Avenue, Coney Island. I'm actually down there a couple times a year. Afterthought forces me to go down. Nathan's, there it is, 11224. And there's some under-the-radar there's under the radar mm. lobster roll places in Hampton Bays. So not in the core Hamptons. You know, some places are a little off the grid out there. Okay. You could write a research report on this? I could. and maybe Probably expense the whole thing. And, and, and maybe a chat GPT <laughs> angle as well. Very cool. Let's make that happen. Chad GPT, hey, Dan, good to see you. Dan Ives of Wedbush.
Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. We're going to get to this very quickly because every moment's important in Monaco and John Farrell's far more abrupt than I am. All I can say is in every sport, there's someone that transcends the day-to-day grind of the sport. You have your heroes. Maybe it's Michael Jordan in basketball. Maybe it's a guy named Judge for the New York Yankees. Daniel Ricciardo is so large for Red Bull and for F1 racing. Anne Hathaway keeled over at the Met Gala when she met him the other day. I bet she did. She Anne Hathaway fell. <laughs> I've had good so fell apart on We're saying Daniel here that Ricardo. Hathaway was the fanboy here, not Daniel. You know, what the problem is, he's wearing Tom Brown at the Met Gala. Thank you, Vogue, for the, the images. And he puts on a fake bow tie. Can you talk to him, John, when you're in Monaco this weekend? We need Ricardo in a real bow tie, not a pretend bow tie. Tied by you. We can talk to him right Go. now. Daniel, I'm pleased to say, joined us going into the race weekend in Monaco. Daniel, wonderful to catch up with you, mate. Just talk to us about how special race weekend is in Monaco. Uh, I thought I thought we were just going to talk about bow ties. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I I um, well, all right. Let's talk about Monaco. It's put it this way: I've been coming here now for uh, 13, 14 years, and it doesn't get old like that. That feeling. I don't know. Monaco is just it's so special. It it transforms into this honestly like this magical place. Um, for the race that rhymes and uh, you have to I feel like everyone has to experience a a Monaco Grand Prix at least once in their life it's pretty surreal Daniel just to build on that one theme for us as we've discussed Formula One its explosion in the United States with with your boss Mr Horner others as well is whether we risk losing the heritage of the sport as we expand in places like Vegas Miami and elsewhere how do you feel about that? I think there's look, there always I think needs to like remain a place for the as you say, like the, the historic venues. Um, you know, yeah, your Monaco's, your uh, I guess if it's Spa in Belgium or Silverstone, uh, Monza. So the, these places for me um, should always have, have a presence on the calendar. 
but I also love going to new places. And I think, you know, how we're able to open ourselves up to new markets now and see the growth in the States. For me, I love because I, I really enjoy spending time in the States. So having like three races there is, is pretty unreal. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle where I'm definitely open to having new venues, but I think you still have to keep um, those core few. Um, they, they shall always remain. If we can, I'd love to talk about your future as well. You're a super charismatic guy. Your personality, as I'm sure you're aware, has transcended the sport with what's happened on Netflix and beyond. But Daniel, I know deep down you're a racing driver. And I want to understand from your perspective how frustrating it's been just being on the outside, on the fringes of the sport, being the reserve driver. What it's like being in the simulator is if it's anywhere near to what it's like actually sitting in the car. I think this this year certainly like serves a purpose for me i i did need to kind of i guess remove myself a little bit from well yeah literally i guess from the driver's seat just to um in a way like in simple terms probably just fall back in love with it again and to to really like miss the sport um i'd come off like a, a more difficult kind of 12 24 months um like competitive wise and i was starting just to just have too many bad days where I needed a bit of a reset and a refresh. So I'm getting that this year. Sure. It is frustrating to be on the sidelines and to watch, but that's also building like this, this fire and and that desire back. So the plan is to, to find myself a a seat next year. And, um, but I don't, I don't want to just be there. You know, I don't want to just get a seat, you know, to say I'm an F1 driver. I, I said, I want to find my way back to a podium. Hey, Daniel, you're in the in-between age. I mean, I don't know much about F1 driving, but I've got Alonzo making a splash this year at 40-something years old. you got a lot of young Turks following behind you. Tell us the experience value, whether it's Miami or Monaco. What do you, what do you sell to a new team or even to Red Bull when you're, you've got a lot more experience? How does that matter in a given race, including this weekend? Yeah, I think the look, experience is, um, I think in this sport as well, well, a lot of sports, but it's it's very valuable because, you know, it comes in terms of on driving, on, on, on track situations. Of course, the more you can um, read a situation, then that can obviously help, but also then um, building a car or helping the guys that build the car and design the car, helping them with feedback and understanding um this helps the team ultimately progress and move forward so that's that's the value i guess in 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 experience um you know i'm 33 at the moment as you mentioned alonso he's he's in his 40s now and he's having one of the best years of his career so that's encouraging for me because there is days you feel a bit old um but then seeing someone like him you're like oh i feel young again so yeah um it's it's look at the end of the day it's how bad you want it and look i'm still in shape and if i want it then i believe i'll get back to it i'm the ugly american learning about formula one and john farrow's been great about explaining to me the red bull distinction i was comparing them to the west coast eagles of australian football (laughs) who are in last place right now you've been red bull since you were like 15 years old 16 what's the red bull pixie dust um, well, <laughs> I don't know if that was a jab at me because I love the Eagles and yes, they're having an absolutely, um, <laughs> terrible season. Um, but yeah, Red, Red Bull certainly, uh, yeah, they're, they're the opposite right now and they've, 
They've been, look, for me growing up, they were the program. You know, that was the, that was the franchise, if you will, that everyone wanted to be a part of and sign for. You know, they had all the resources to progress you up the ladder if, if you were having the results. So that for me is like the family that gave me the opportunity and, and now being back in the family, it's like it feels like uh, like it's the biggest family I've ever had in, in racing and the place where I feel I belong. So right now, like that's my that's my dream is to, to be back here with this team racing and hopefully winning another Monaco one day. You think there's potential to get a seat? again at Red Bull Racing, Daniel, or are you looking elsewhere? I think, look, I in this sport, I know things can change so quickly. And even even in at the end of 2018, you know, when, when I moved on to Renault, people probably never, ever thought they'd see me wearing a, a Red Bull polo shirt again. So things, things certainly change and can happen. So never say never. Um, I'm also just like, look, if I focus on myself and apply myself and keep training, keep working hard, then anything could happen. So, um, yeah, and it helps when you got, you know, good looks in this sport. So, of course, that's what they say. Like Charles Leclerc. I was just wondering, I know <laughs> yeah. you speak a bit of Italian. You've got, oh, here that, we go. you've got that Italian blood running through your veins. Can you imagine being in the red outfit over at Ferrari? I, look, I, again, never say never. I feel like it probably would have happened by now um, if, if it would have. So, yeah, that one's probably more slim, but uh, but honestly, this is I'd love to be here. That's 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 where I'm at. That's a nice place to leave it, Daniel. This was a pleasure, a privilege. If you make it to New York, drop by. We'd love to catch up with you, Daniel Ricciardo. There, yeah, bring Anne Hathaway. Of course, <laughs> bring Anne too. And TK's going to teach you how to do it the bow tie. Yeah. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.